Welcome to the Bloody Bible, the podcast where we explore why our fascination with crime is as old as the Bible itself. I'm Kaz. And I'm Em. And for this week's episode, we're looking at a particularly bloody narrative from the Hebrew Bible that involves gang rape, murder, dismemberment, sex trafficking, and intimate partner violence. And as usual, we'll be drawing on some contemporary cases of violent crime to see if we can shine a light on this violent biblical story. Now, I think it's important at this point to note that some listeners might find the subject matter in today's episode particularly distressing. So this is just a bit of a content warning right at the start, and feel free to skip the episode if you'd rather not listen. Yeah, and we've put some links in our show notes of resources and support services for anyone who's been impacted by the violent crimes we'll be discussing today. So the story we're focusing on is Judges 19 to 21. And there's a lot that happens in these chapters, which we're going to unpack quite carefully throughout the episode. Kaz, do you want to give listeners a quick overview of what the story is about? Sure. So in a nutshell, um, the text tells the story of a woman who's married to a Levite priest. Now, this woman is brutally gang raped and murdered. And then we're told that when her husband finds her body, he dismembers her into 12 pieces and sends a piece to each of the tribes of Israel. So grisly. It is. It's horrific. And you know this act that he does, this sending out these pieces of dismembered body, it sparks a civil war between the tribes, which ultimately ends in the mass abduction, trafficking and rape of hundreds of Israelite women. To say that this is a grim story is a bit of an understatement. Yeah, it really is. And what's more horrifying is that we're not just talking about violent events from the distant past. Crimes such as gang rape, sex trafficking and the dismemberment of homicide victims still happen today. Oh yeah, totally, yeah. When I was thinking about this story, I was trying to think of some contemporary cases that it reminded me of, but can you think of any more sort of, you know, recent cases that came to your mind when you were looking at the text? Yeah, and there are actually a disturbing number of true crime cases that resonate in some way with this story. I actually find it quite upsetting just how modern some of the elements of this biblical story actually are. But I I particularly thought about Hallie Crafts, who was murdered by her husband Richard in 1986. All right, I've not heard of that. What what happened? So this was a premeditated murder. Richard carefully planned Hallie's death. He shot her. He stored her body in a chest freezer before dismembering her with a chainsaw and putting each of her frozen body parts through an industrial wood chipper. Oh, good Lord. That, <laughs> that, that is absolutely horrendous. It's, it is. It's, it's utterly, utterly horrific. But law enforcement were able to find enough forensic evidence to charge Richard with her murder, okay. and he was eventually convicted in 1990. What about you? Are there any recent cases that come to your mind when you read the Judges 19 story? Yeah, well, given that a gang rape takes place in the text, I actually thought of Jyoti Singh, Mm. who was raped by six men in Delhi in 2012. And uh, Jyoti and her friend had caught a bus home after being out at the cinema one evening, but the driver and the five passengers attacked them in what appeared to be a premeditated crime. Now, they physically assaulted Jyoti's friend and they brutally gang-raped Jyoti and mutilated her body. And um, tragically, she died 13 days later due to her extensive injuries. So it's it's another, you know, it's just horrendous, isn't it? Yeah, I remember that case. It's utterly, utterly heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Let's keep these two cases in mind as we come to read the judge's story. 
At the start of Judges 19, we're told that the Levite's wife has left her husband and made the long journey to her father's house in Bethlehem. Now, we're not told her name. None of the characters are given a name in this story. She's referred to as the Levite's Pilagesh. And this is a Hebrew term that is often translated as concubine or secondary wife, kind of like a lower status wife of some sort. But for the sake of simplicity, we'll just call her the Levite's wife. So do we know why she left her husband? Well, there's some ambiguity about why she left. Most English translations of the Hebrew text say something like she was unfaithful to him. So this could mean that she had committed adultery, but it also could suggest that she's been unfaithful in the sense that she's chosen to leave her husband. In other words, she's been unfaithful to the marriage. Oh, okay. Now, of course, biblical women weren't expected to initiate a divorce or separation, so her behavior might have been seen as a sign of her disloyalty to the marriage. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if she was sexually unfaithful, because if she was, why would the Levite go to such lengths to get her back? Hmm. And wouldn't he just divorce her? I know that there's a law in, I think it's the book of Leviticus, that says priests could only marry a woman who was a virgin because priestly purity was so important. Mm. So, you know, with that in mind, I'm not even sure if he'd be allowed to stay married to an adulterous wife. Yeah, I agree. And if we jump forward to our own time again for a moment to Hallie Craft's murder, we know that she was planning to leave her husband Richard because of his numerous affairs and because he was physically and emotionally abusive towards her throughout their marriage. Okay, so do you think that could shed light on why the Levite's wife left him? You know, could their marriage have been abusive? I mean, that could make sense because we're told that the Levite travelled to Bethlehem in order to, quote, speak to her heart, which is a, a Hebrew phrase that basically means to persuade or to win around, to console. Okay. And that's actually a classic technique used by some perpetrators of intimate partner violence. It's part of the cycle of abuse. Mm. So after they've been violent or abusive, some perpetrators will apologize to their victims. They'll promise never to hurt them again and declare their undying love. It's sometimes referred to as love bombing. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it's designed to keep the victim trapped in an abusive relationship by playing on her emotions. So I wonder if the Levite is planning to kind of to love bomb his wife when he gets to Bethlehem. Yeah, I mean, that, that could be the case. You know, so speaking to the heart of his wife could be part of the Levite's abuse rather than being evidence that he genuinely loves her. And, you know, to be honest, how much does he really love her? I mean, doesn't he wait something like four months before traveling to Bethlehem to see her? Yeah. Why wait that long? You know, was he just assuming that she'd come back herself after a few days or a week? Or, you know, did he expect her father to send her back? Or another reason, and, and this is just speculation on my part, but thinking back to Halle Crafts again, after Richard had killed her, he had initially told friends and family that she was off traveling or visiting family. And this was to stall anyone looking for her or questioning him about her disappearance. So with the Levite, I wonder if the people in his neighborhood are starting to ask him where his wife is. And maybe he's told them, oh, you know, she's, she's visiting her father in Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. He might not have wanted to admit that she'd left him because that could make him look like a bad husband. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But as the months go by, maybe the locals are getting a bit suspicious. Maybe they're starting to suspect that she's run away and left him. Or maybe that he's even done something to her. 
And if the Levite found out about these rumors, he'd certainly be keen to go and fetch his wife so that he could prove himself to them. Yeah. Now, of course, none of this is actually in the text. It's just an attempt to fill this narrative gap. But I think that interpretation really does make sense. Um, and, and I can imagine that rumours like that could seriously threaten the Levites' masculine honour. Yeah. And we know that you know in the Bible, a man's honour and his masculinity is measured by a lot of things, including his ability to be a good husband and provider and to keep a tight rein on the women in his household, particularly his wife. Yeah. So, you know, when the Levite's wife leaves him, it could have caused him a huge amount of personal shame because it raises questions about his status as a man. And, you know, I can just imagine, you know, the people in his community might be saying things like, oh, you know, he can't even control his wife. What kind of man is he? So, you know, he might feel that he has to prove them wrong and prove that he is a real man by getting his wife back under control. You're right. I mean, that's exactly what he does. He, he sets out to Bethlehem to fetch his wife, as you say. Now, what do you think about the way his wife's father treats him when he arrives in Bethlehem? I mean, the text implies that the father seems really welcoming and invites the Levite, his son-in-law, to stay. Mm -hmm. So he stays for three days, but when he tries to leave on the fourth day, the father urges his son-in-law to stay another night. And then the same thing happens the next day too, when the Levite is trying to leave. But finally, the Levite puts his foot down and says, no, we're leaving. <laughs> I mean... I mean, why do you think her father is trying so hard to stop them going? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. The text doesn't tell us, does it? But, you know, I wonder, I did wonder if the father was genuinely concerned about his daughter's safety, you know, and maybe she told him that her marriage was unhappy or, or even abusive. Actually, that reminds me of something Hallie Craft apparently said to a friend not that long before she was killed. She said, if I disappear, it won't be an accident. <sighs> So she must have suspected that her husband was at least capable of seriously harming her. Oh, yeah. And that's so heartbreaking, isn't it? That, you know, the thought that she knew she was in so much danger, but you know, couldn't do anything about it. I wonder if the Levite's wife maybe said something similar to her father then, just like telling him that, basically telling him that she was in danger. Yeah. Or maybe he just guessed that things weren't going well. He could have had his own suspicions about the Levite and didn't quite trust him to look after his daughter. I mean, we both know how hard it is for victims of domestic violence to disclose their abuse to family and friends. Oh, yeah. yeah. And often when those closest to the victim suspect something's going on, they just don't want to say anything or they don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe the only thing the father feels he can do is try to keep her with him in Bethlehem for as long as he can. Yeah, maybe. Uh, but, you know, the irony is that this woman has no say in the matter. It, it's like her fate is in the hands of these two men, her father and her husband, and what she wants isn't even considered. Yeah, exactly. We never hear what she wants. No. I also wonder if the Levite feels his masculine authority is being disrespected here by his wife's father, by his father-in-law. I mean, his wife has disrespected him by running away, and now her father doesn't seem to be taking him seriously when he wants to leave. No. Each time he says, I'm going, the other man kind of politely tells him and says, no, you can't go yet. Yeah, yeah. His father-in-law, is, is he's been really polite and a good host. But he also seems to be manipulating the Levite here and sort of undermining his authority by trying to stop him from leaving. So, yeah, I mean, I could imagine that the Levite's sense of 
shame and frustration that he's already feeling um, could be building up as each day passes and he still can't leave. And actually, that might also explain why he makes some really catastrophic decisions at the start of the journey home. So the Levite's father-in-law quite wisely tells him not to begin their journey so late in the day, but the Levite completely ignores this advice. And then, once they're actually on their way and it's starting to get dark, his male servant suggests that they stop in at a nearby town called Jebus just before night falls. But the Levite again refuses to listen to this advice and insists that they keep going until they reach an Israelite city. Yeah, I mean, I I get the impression the Levite has gotten frustrated because people keep telling him what to do all the time. And I wonder if he's trying to regain his authority here by insisting that people start doing things his way. You definitely get that sense, hey? Mm-hmm. So they reach an Israelite town called Gibeah, which is in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin, and they decide to stay there. But we soon learn that this is a really big mistake. Initially, at least, they can't find anywhere to stay, but eventually they meet a man who lives in the town and he offers to put them up for the night. But just as they're sitting down to their evening meal, a gang of men from Gibeah surround the house and they start pounding on the door shouting bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him or in other words bring him out so that we can gang rape him yeah i mean it's it's so clear that the men of gibeah are planning something really violent here and so it really frustrates me when i read interpretations of the story where the men are described as homosexuals or as being driven by sort of air quotes homosexual lust yeah now, you know, the, the text is is very explicit that the men of Gibeah are threatening to have sex with another man without his consent. And I'm sorry, but that's gang rape. Mm. It's got nothing to do with homosexuality. And gang rape, like all rape, it, it's about violence. It's about humiliating the victim and exerting power and control over the victim. It's not about lust, homosexual or otherwise. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. That really frustrates me too. Yeah. Gang rapists aren't driven by sexual desire. They use sexual violence to demonstrate their power over a victim and to reaffirm their own sense of masculinity, not to mention showing the victim that they are utterly worthless and undeserving of any respect. Yeah, yeah. You know, I know there are quite a few theories about the causes of gang rape. One theory that I came across recently is that you know perpetrators may commit this crime as a way to like affirm their allegiance and loyalty to each other and to strengthen their sense of group cohesion and identity. And you know that group could be a gang or a fraternity, a sports team, a military unit, or an ethnic group. Mm. And so, you know, in other words, the gang rape is seen as a way for members to bond with each other and to demonstrate their masculinity to each other and to their victim. And, you know, I was reading that, as I say, quite recently, and it made me wonder, are these men of Gibeah threatening the Levite with gang rape in order to sort of prove themselves, to bond with each other um, and also to prove themselves to this outsider, this, this Levite priest? Because... He's dared to come to their town. Mm. You know, is it their way of saying, don't mess with the men of Gibeah? You know, we're real men and we're going to prove it to you. Mm. That's really interesting. And I think it makes sense in this context where the text doesn't actually give us a reason for the actions of these men. No, no, it doesn't. And if you're right, the so-called display of masculine strength by the men of Gibeah 
adds further insult to injury to the Levite's own sense of masculinity, which, as we've already speculated, may have been under threat already. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, thinking more about this scene, you know, what also horrifies me, or what horrifies me in particular, is the response of both the host and the Levite to this threatened gang rape. Because it, the host tells the men outside, and um, these are his words, he says, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Look, here are my virgin daughter and his wife. Let me bring them out. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. Now, I mean, you know, what the what? Yes, I, I, I don't even know how to respond to the host's words here. I mean... I think it demonstrates that the rape of a man is taken way more seriously than the rape of a woman. Yeah, definitely. And so the host's primary concern is to protect his male guest, even if he has to use his own daughter and his female guest as kind of human shields. Mm. It's as though they're totally disposable. They're objects that can be used and abused for the protection of men and male honor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But unfortunately, things just keep getting worse and worse. The men of Gibeah initially don't listen to the host, but then someone, most likely the Levite, grabs his wife and propels her out the door to the waiting mob, where we learn that the men of the town, quote, wantonly rape her and abuse her all through the night until the morning. I mean, why? Um, why? I, why did the Levite push his wife out the door? I just cannot understand his actions here at all. Well, I mean, he's, he's clearly saving himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. And not just physically or in terms of his bodily integrity, but also in terms of his honor and his masculinity. Because when a man is raped, penetrated by another man, it's understood as a massive source of dishonor and shame. Mm -hmm. Because he's essentially being placed in a feminine position. He's penetrated rather than being the penetrator. And we've established that the Levite's masculinity is already under threat here. And we all know that the biggest threat to biblical masculinity is being treated like a woman. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. And yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. And I guess on saying that, though, I, I know that we have to remember that the Levite is a victim in this situation too. You know, that the text really drives home how traumatizing even the threat of rape and gang rape can be. Because... I, I do think the Levite is traumatized here and, and that's not to justify or defend his actions. But I think that what he does is is the act of a desperate and absolutely terrified man. Oh, absolutely. And we can't ignore that the Levite is a victim. No. But we also can't ignore that all his actions seem to have been driven throughout the story by his need to defend and reassert his masculinity. Yeah. And in that sense, maybe he has more in common with the gang rapists than he'd like to admit. It's as though the story is warning us that masculinity can be this really toxic, violent and destructive force in men's life too. Yeah, 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 I agree. I was also wondering if the Levite chose to betray his wife, you know, by pushing her out that door, because deep down, maybe even unconsciously, he blames her for them being in this horrific situation. Perhaps in his eyes, they were in this house in Gibeah under attack because she had run away from him and because her father had delayed them. And I wonder if there's some victim blame going on here. It, you know, it feels to me like a real see what you made me do moment. Can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, in, in what sense? In the sense that 
a perpetrator of intimate partner violence will often rationalise his violence by blaming his victim for making him so angry and making him lash out. And so it's all her fault. You know, she made him do it. She's to blame. So, so maybe the Levite is going through the same thought process here in Judges 19. I mean, it's just just a thought. It's not in the text, is it? But I was, I'm just trying to unwind his his motivations here. Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree that this could be what's happening. And if I recall, we see the same sort of thing happening in the case of Jyoti Singh and how some of the discussions around her gang rape drew on victim-blaming discourses. Politicians and community leaders and members of the Delhi police force were quoted as saying that Jyoti was responsible for her rape in some Mm. sense because, you know, she was out at night with a male friend. She must have led her rapists on or flirted with them or she must have been dressed inappropriately Essentially, she was being blamed for being a young woman acting with some agency. Yeah, yeah, but you know the the thing is that you know Jyoti Singh did cling on to her own agency, didn't she? Mm. Uh, you know when she was in the hospital before she died. You know I read that despite her dreadful injuries, she spent time talking to the police, helping them identify the men who raped her, making sure that they were brought to justice. Yeah. And you know that that sense of agency makes me think of the Levite's wife as well, who, despite being the victim of this horrific night-long gang rape, she refuses to give up her agency because you know we're told in the text that her her last act in the morning is to make her way back to the house her husband is staying in, and she collapses by the door with her hand outstretched on the doorstep. And you know when I picture this scene in my mind, I just think of her hand laying on that doorstep pointing an accusing finger at the men in that house who'd let her down so badly. It's such a powerful image, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, we don't know what the Levite thought had happened to his wife after he threw her out the door the night before. And there's no mention in the text of him making any effort to find her. But when he comes across her on the doorstep the next morning, we're told that he was already about to head home, presumably without her. Hmm which seems to me just so utterly uncaring and cold. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. And then when he does speak to her, when she's lying there on the doorstep on the threshold, he's so brusque. He says kind of, get up, we're going. He doesn't say, are you okay? He doesn't reach out to her and touch her and say, let me help you or what happened or I'm so sorry. There's absolutely no concern or care reflected in his words. No, absolutely not. It's 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 utterly, his behavior and his words are just utterly chilling. Mm. I wonder if that suggests he's still angry with her or or maybe he's feeling guilty about what's happened to his wife, but he's projecting that guilt onto her in some way yeah I don't I don't know Kaz because his behavior here is only just the start we're told that he then puts her onto his donkey and he takes her back to Ephraim then he takes hold of her and dismembers her body with a knife limb by limb into 12 pieces and sends one piece out to each of the tribes of Israel I mean what do you make of that oh I, I yeah it's it's awful and almost beyond belief um it's it's like this so so grim and ghastly i mean he's he's perpetrating even more violence against this woman's already brutalized body i've been doing a a bit of reading up on on dismemberment in homicide cases oh okay um that i must confess makes me feel a bit nervous and 
I think I'm going to take a rain check on these drinks we arranged for next weekend. I promise. I promise, kids. That's the last thing on my mind. Oh, phew. <laughs> but criminologists recognize that perpetrators dismember their victims for a number of different reasons. So we won't go through all of them here, but I'll just mention a few that might be relevant to our story. So in some cases, murderers will dismember their victim for kind of for practical purposes to make hiding or moving or disposing of a corpse easier or to cover up forensic evidence or to even make the identification of the the victim a little bit more difficult for law enforcement. I mean, yeah, I've read about a few cases where a killer dismembers their victim and they put the the body parts in trash bags, then you throw them into a dumpster or a garbage bin and always strikes me as as such a horrible and disrespectful way to treat a victim, you know, to to throw them away like trash. It's it's just the the symbolism is just so distressing and it, it speaks to the killer's total disregard and contempt for the victim. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's upsetting to think about. So so with that, that idea of dismemberment as, as being sort of practical in, in air quotes, would that type of dismemberment fit with the case of Hella Crafts? I, I'm assuming her husband Richard was trying to hide his crime, you know, dispose of her body, get rid of the evidence. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he certainly seems to have done it for, for practical purposes. Okay. okay. But another type of dismemberment is sometimes referred to as aggressive dismemberment, where the offender is driven by excessive rage, which can begin with the murder, but then extend into an act of dismemberment after the person is dead. So it's a bit like overkill. They can't stop perpetrating violence against their victim, even after they've killed them. It's like an attempt to exercise total and utter control over their victim and to express deep anger and contempt for the victim Mm, that's that's horrific and and terrifying isn't it that extent of rage yeah thinking thinking about our judges 19 story I, i was wondering is dismemberment ever used to send a sort of gruesome message of sorts as it seems to be in this biblical story, because it, it reminded me of the you know the Robert Galbraith novel, where Robin, the, one of the private detectives, is sent a severed leg through the post as a, a kind of taunt or warning from the killer. You know, th- does that happen in real life? Actually, yes. And this oh, okay. is sometimes referred to as communication dismemberment. Ah. Where a body or body parts are sent to a person or a group as a message, which could be a, a warning or a threat or a challenge. Okay, so communication dismemberment does seem to capture what the Levite's doing, doesn't it? Because, you know, he sends out his wife's body parts to the tribes in Israel to sort of shock them uh, into taking action on his behalf. Yes, but I'm also wondering if this is also a case of aggressive dismemberment as well. Because criminologists acknowledge that killers might dismember their victim for more than one reason. And we've seen throughout this story that the Levite seems to be suffering from a massive crisis crisis of masculinity Mm. from his wife leaving him all the way through to his threatened gang rape. And we've brought up the idea that he he might blame his wife for all of that. Mm -hmm. So it could be that he's feeling a sense of humiliated fury here. He has such an acute sense of shame about his failures as a man. And maybe he's also feeling guilty about the role he played in his wife's gang rape. And so all of that kind of erupts in rage and violence. He attacks his wife's already violated body and exerts his own masculine aggression on it, almost as though he's reclaiming his power and control over her from the rapists. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that definitely 
Makes sense. But I guess, you know, whatever the Levite's motivations for dismembering his wife's body, it, it, it's just, I can't get it out of my head. It was such mm. a mark of utter disrespect, wasn't it? You know, yeah. he desecrated her. He objectified her. He he used her as some form of communication as, as though that's all she was worth. Yes, exactly. And I mean, it's it's also a really powerful expression of her total disintegration at the hands of men. Mm. I mean, she's been abused and passed about like an object between different men in this story to the point that her identity and her humanity are completely destroyed. But perhaps we can think about her still kind of speaking through her dismembered broken body. It's like a witness to her suffering and it identifies all those men, including her husband, who violated and ultimately killed her. And I was thinking the same thing about Hallie Crafts, um, where the police were sadly unable to find much in the way of her remains, but what they did find helped them to convict her husband of her murder. So her body and her blood could still speak, and it was a witness to the horrific violence perpetrated by Richard Crafts against her. That kind of reminds me, or it brings back the, the, the biblical story of Abel, in Genesis 4, you know, after he was murdered by his brother Cain, we're told that Abel's blood you know, cried from the ground as, as a witness to the violence perpetrated against him and, and also to make clear who had perpetrated that violence. So it's, it's as though the victim's body, you know, however damaged and violated or, or, or even dismembered, still has the power to bring the perpetrator to justice. So it, mm. you know, it's, it's quite a powerful image, isn't it? I do have one question for you, Em, and it's a rather disturbing question about the woman's dismemberment in Judges 19. Was she dead when the Levite found her? Or did he kill her first before dismembering her? Or, and, and I really hope this is not the answer, did she die as the result of being dismembered? Because the text doesn't explicitly say, does it, whether or not she was still alive when the Levite found her on the doorstep? No, the text the text is silent on that. In the Hebrew Bible, all it says is that she didn't respond when her husband told her to get up. And then he put her on his donkey, he took her home, and we learn that he dismembered her there. Okay, I, I wonder if the author of Judges 19 left that deliberately vague so as to, to paint the Levite in a rather suspicious light. Yeah, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me because, to be honest, he's also a bit suspicious when he finally addresses the Israelites about what happened at Gibeah. So after getting sent a body part, we're told that the people of Israel are obviously and rightly horrified, and so the chiefs of each tribe and their troops gather together to hear the Levite's story. And he spins this story in such a way that it doesn't really capture everything that went on there. He says, and these are his words, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my wife, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my wife, and she is dead. So what is he saying here? And what is he not saying here? Well, he doesn't tell the crowd that he was threatened with gang rape, for starters. But, you know, I can kind of understand that. He might still be feeling a huge amount of shame and trauma about that. So, so perhaps he just didn't want to disclose to this huge crowd that he'd been nearly a victim himself. Hmm. But 
I also noticed that he forgets to mention he was the one who pushed his wife out of the house to the gang rapists. And, you know, that's rather convenient, isn't it? I guess it could be a sign that he's feeling some guilt and shame about it. After all, biblical men are supposed to protect their wives, not hand them over to a gang of rapists. True, true. But he needs the crowd on his side, right? Mm, So he can mm -hmm. persuade them to start a war against the tribe of Benjamin, which is the tribe that the rapists belong to. So he paints himself as the victim here. Now, obviously, he mentions that his wife is a victim too, but he foregrounds his own suffering over hers. If you look closely at what the text says, it's all about him. He says, the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me. They meant to kill me. They violated my wife. In other words, a really serious crime has been committed, but he's suggesting that it's been committed against him. Yeah, yeah, that it comes out really clearly, doesn't it, uh, in the text. But, you know, it's effective. The, the Levite speech works here, doesn't it? Because you know, everyone who's gathered agrees that they must start a civil war against the tribe of Benjamin. That, and, and that must have been such an ego boost. That response must have been such an ego boost for the Levite. You know, all these tribal leaders and thousands of soldiers are gathered because of him. And they're all supporting him. And they're all prepared to go to war because his masculinity has been compromised. Exactly. And so we see that the cycle of violence keeps going on and on, spiraling out more and more. So the civil war that follows leads to countless deaths of Benjaminite men, women and children to the point where the other tribes are worried that the tribe of Benjamin won't survive. They'll just die out. So they decide to abduct some women from the other Israelite tribes to be wives for the Benjaminite men and to keep the tribe going. So what began as the gang rape and murder of one woman ends with the abduction, trafficking and rape of hundreds of women from the two Israelite towns of Jabesh Gilead in Shiloh. There's just such a horrible irony about the fact that the Israelites perpetrate this mass act of gender-based violence as part of a war that was ignited by another act of gender-based violence. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really tragic and yeah, so, so ironic. And it, it reminds me that sexual violence and sex trafficking is, is such a huge part of warfare, isn't it? It always has been and it still is today. Yeah. You know, women are constantly getting caught in the crosshairs of wars started by men and and fought you know in the main by men exactly and i think we do touch on this topic elsewhere in the podcast so what are your final thoughts about the story of the levite's wife kez well for me this text offers a really powerful condemnation of gender-based violence. That's that's the way I read it anyway. Mm. You know, I, I think it gives us a, a stark warning about, you know, the terrible outcomes for any society where masculinity is so toxic and is taken so seriously that men will use gang rape, sex trafficking, murder, spousal abuse, and dismemberment just to prove to each other that they're man enough. Yeah. You know, it it's highlighting all the failures of a society whose patriarchal power structures are more likely to harm women than to protect them. Yeah, I completely agree. And in all of this, the voice, the experience, the trauma, the suffering of the women is totally silenced. It's it's written out. And on that note, I think we should finish by mentioning just one last thing. We've focused on some stories of horrific violence against women in this episode. 
against Jyoti Singh, Hallie Crafts, and the Levite's wife. But I don't want us to end with the image of these women's violated and mutilated and dismembered bodies at the forefront of our mind. No, no. Because that's so often what gets focused on, almost to the point that the living, breathing women at the centre of these crimes get forgotten. I mean, in the media, Hallie Crafts becomes the hidden victim in what's commonly referred to as the woodchipper murder, or Jyoti Singh becomes the girl on the bus who died of horrific injuries. And in biblical studies, we most often talk about the unnamed Levite's wife as 12 dismembered body parts. But these women were so, so much more than that. Oh, yeah, that, I mean, that's so true. You know, we, we all need to remember, or, or perhaps we need to remember rather than dismember mm. uh, these women and, and to keep in mind who they were before they were killed and, you know, as, as real life, living, breathing people. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Hallie Crafts, for example, had a successful career as a flight attendant. She spoke numerous languages fluently. She was a beloved mother, daughter and friend. Jyoti Singh was a much-loved daughter who was training to be a physiotherapist, and she enjoyed going to the cinema with her friends. She was looking forward to the future. Yeah, and you know, the Levite's wife was, was a woman who showed immense courage and agency trying to escape from an unhappy and possibly abusive marriage. And you know, even after her gang rape, she mustered enough strength to point that accusing finger at the man who'd let her down so badly when he should have been protecting her. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we go, shall we share with our listeners uh, what we've been reading or, or listening to at the moment? Yes, let's do that. We'll end on a, <laughs> a more pleasing note. <laughs> it's been quite a stressful uh, episode, hasn't it? It has. Heavy, heavy material. So my favourite podcast at the moment is called True Crime Brewery. And the hosts are Dick and Jill. And they cover a lot of different true crime cases every week. And every week they also recommend or have a little bit of a beer tasting at the start of the episode, which is great. Um, I like the sound of that. Yeah, it's great. I, you know, what I like about it is each episode is it's so well researched and they handle each case with you know, incredible sensitivity and insight. And also a little bit of like humour too, but very appropriate humour. And they have this gorgeous kind of interpersonal dynamic that that makes them really listenable and engaging i actually think now that i think of it they they may have done an episode on the helicrafts case mm. which i've not listened to yet so i'm definitely going to check that out so what, what about you what have you been listening to well, I feel like I've learned enough about murder and dismemberment of women for one lifetime. Yes. But there are, of course, a number, I mean, a depressing number of other cases we could have talked about, but but didn't. Yes. And one of my true crime go-to podcasts is called Red Handed. And they do an episode on Ed Gain and discuss his truly horrific murder and dismemberment yeah. of numerous women. It's It's a really hard listen much like today's episode, but it also asks us to remember, like you say, the women whose lives were taken. Yeah, Red Handed is, is great as well. It's really, it's one of my favourites too. Okay then, well, thank you for listening to this episode of The Bloody Bible. And as usual, you'll find our show notes on the website, along with the links to our social media accounts. But until next time, stay safe and we'll see you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Bloody Bible podcast. In case you caught the brief mention of a book by Robert Galbraith earlier in the podcast and wanted to know what that book was, the specific book in question was Career of Evil. 
The Bloody Bible podcast is supported by funding from the United Kingdom Arts and Humanities Research Council as part of the Shiloh Project Research Grant. Special thanks to Professor Johannes Stiebert at the University of Leeds, who commissioned us to create the podcast. The podcast is produced by Carolyn Blythe, Emily Colgan, and me, Richard Bonifant, who also recorded and edited each episode. Our music is Stalker by Alexis Ortiz-Sofield, courtesy of Pixabay Music, and the podcast artwork was created by Sarah Lee West. Feel free to check out the show notes, which have links to all of our social media, and we'd love to hear from you. 